Uh, we, we were meeting as leaders on Thursday and um, uh, there were several topics that came up that um, we felt we needed to address and talking to Chris this week we felt um, uh, that, that we should address one of those topics that, that um, came up. So I want to talk to you a bit tonight about um, what I'm going to call the common enemy principle and uh, how it unites people. Um, it's always difficult um, for me, certainly where I am now and, and at this point in my journey, how much, how much is right to say publicly because I, um, we have walked for a long time under a barrage of criticism, rejection, uh, condemnation. Sadly, sadly, not from outside of the church, but within the church. So uh, we protect you from the difficult environment that often we are living in. Um, a lot of that stems from, um, from rumors and accusations that sadly seem to circulate uh, within the church community. So uh, it's not that anybody actually was here or heard or talked to us or talked to me, um, but but these things circulate, and you know the the upshot of it is, for example, um, if, you, if you take Chloe, for example, you try and post something on the the CU website, and it's going to get taken down because the rock is not acknowledged to be able to to do that. Now there are, there are some reasons for that in the context that we are not part of um, a wider group within the city. I'm not even going to use a lot of names. Um, but one of the reasons we're not part of that is because they decided we were not suitable to be part of that. So that kind of slips the um, memory. So now it becomes that the rock has left or the rock has not chosen to be part. Well, that, that of course, begins the rumor mongering that somehow we're to blame for a situation that we never initiated. Now, I'm just being open and honest with you. So, um, of course, that... That can create a, um, a atmosphere that is very negative in the context of the house and people coming because whether you are aware or not, many people are told you don't want to go there because of the problems at the rock. Well, please tell me what those problems are if you know what those problems are. Now, for those of you who've been with us for a long time, we walked through some problems, didn't we? And uh, I think we walked through them very well, and we lived through a culture of grace and of kindness. Um, but sadly, where we have moved on from that, it seems that, that many others haven't. Now, again, um, you're always putting yourself at risk saying this, because it can be interpreted that I'm now being critical of other churches, which is not my intention, um, and I'm going to talk to you about that. I am just being honest with you that it's a difficult environment sometimes in which to work when when people are initially prevented from considering coming to the rock because of unsubstantiated rumors or conversation or gossip which correct me if I'm wrong the last place that that should happen is in this thing called the body of Christ where our message is one of forgiveness and as far as the east is from the west that's how far removes our transgressions from us that he forgets all our sins and puts them behind him. So um, I am not by any means saying there are not steps that we can take, and we're in the process of taking some steps um, within that. But you need to know, because you're part of this, 
um, that that is often what we are protecting you from. So pray for us because our spirit has been, um, I don't want to say things to you about people, whether they say things about us or not. Um, The danger with that is, because I don't say anything, it can appear that then what is said must be true. What is said must be substantiated because the other side is not put. Um, But if you remember Jesus when he was taken for his crucifixion and with all the accusations that were against him, he kept silent. Um, The upshot of that was they crucified him. So I'd like to say that the consequence of Jesus keeping silent was that they said, well, if, you know... He must be an okay kind of guy, so we'll just let him off. That It didn't work that way, and unfortunately in life it still doesn't work that way. And uh, sometimes because I am human, I would like to justify my own position and our own position much more than I do, um, but really want to, to try and hang on to the grace of God to where we can walk with integrity and kindness and forgiveness. So some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's good. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been in environments where those things have been said to you. Things like, I can't believe you're still going to that place. Now, I do object to some things because um, uh, they upset me because it suggests that our chosen staff members may not be up to the job. One rumor was circulating, which was vicious, that you don't want to be sending your kids to the rock because it's not a safe environment. I object to that. I object because we do our very utmost to maintain high standards of safety and protection legally and personally and I also respect our Dan and our Beth and the teams they work with and I I find those things very objectionable because it's like touching my family and um, and I don't like them. I told you one of the other things that was was, um, propagated within the city, I won't tell you where it came from because that disturbs me more than the content. But that the police had actually been here three times to, to, because they had to come because of what was being pre- preached in the, the church. Now, that's ridiculous, but um, again, I, I'm not trying to point fingers, but you just have to get the gravity of this. That was spoken by a senior church leader in the city to another church leader of some respect. So we know that the sources sound, and we know that that what was reported is right, and I find that disturbing, I find that difficult to swallow, um, but grace to it, okay? However, what, the reason I've said that is because what I want to talk to you about tonight is something called the common enemy principle, which um, we, we can unfortunately fall either side of a divide, where we get the best of, of neither, so I'm hoping tonight we can say a little to... Um, Maybe resolve that. So, so what I'm talking to you about may seem a strange concept, but it's a very powerful reality. I'll read you some verses from Luke 23, um, which finish in a verse that I think is very important for us understanding the dynamics of what happens and why these things happen. Okay, So Luke 23, NIV, Then the whole assembly rose and led him off, that's Jesus, to Pilate, Of course, Pilate was the Roman governor. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ the King. Um, None of which were true, okay? Because even Jesus never claimed to be Christ the King, nor was he ever opposing taxes. See how these things... 
Um, So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? It is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. It's not an accusation I'm unfamiliar with myself. Um, On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, of course, Herod was was the, um, they call him the Tetrarch. In other words, he was the official political king of the Jews, but obviously um, more a very fractious and tense relationship with the Roman Empire, who now, of course, ruled Judea. Uh, So he was their puppet leader. Um, And so on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he'd heard about him, he had hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressed him in an elegant robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Now listen to verse 12. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. So the question is, what is it that turned enemies into friends? How come within that that fractious and pressured relationship that suddenly something developed that naturally should not really have existed? Because this verse 12 is a highly significant verse, easily missed by by those who don't take time to consider its wider context and implications. In fact, some people would ask, should we take any notice of of this verse is it does it really mean anything aren't you aren't you making much ado about nothing but we should take notice because it's drawing attention to a shocking truth about what is probably the primary bonding agent in many people's relationships and understanding of relational dynamics so the question becomes what caused those who were previously not friends and in this case actually enemies to become friends Here's the deal. Having a common enemy is one of, if, if not, if, is one of, if not the most powerful element in bonding people together. Now, th- this requires some. It's one of those moments where you have to stop and think: Is that really true? But the moment you stop and ask the question and look around about the formation of relationships and the the development of unity, you realize that actually a common enemy is probably the strongest bonding agent of anything in the world. When you really take it down to its nth degree, you realize that the majority of Christians, in my view, and and after my lifetime's experience, um, are not necessarily Christians because of who God is, but because they are united against a common enemy called hell and eternal damnation. Which is a great motivating factor, if you begin to believe it, to come on God's side. 
So it can be a very subtle thing in the arena of human relationship in that the declaration of common feeling about what has become the common enemy may not be actually stated in words. So most of the time, this is not going on with, uh, oh, that's my enemy, that's my enemy. You know, let's make them our enemy and we'll be joined together. Um, I, I also have a long, long experience in, in, in church life as well as being a human being. In fact, I've lived for all of my life as a human being. And the funny thing is I've lived for all of my life in church also. So I have experience of, of both is that, is that um, commonality in offence binds people together almost inseparably. So it's often not even that we have found a common love or a common desire for each other, but our commonality comes in an offence that we share, okay? Which is the same thing as, as how it often manifests when we have a common enemy. So, so it can be a very subtle thing in the arena of human relationships um, that's not stated in words. The reason it's not stated in words between human beings, because I'm also a human being, is the problem is that words lead to words that can lead to accountability. So a common phrase gets used. You might have heard this one. I just don't want to talk about it. But that exposes that there is an it, which you just talked about. But if you say, did you talk about X? You say, I never said anything, which is in essence technically true, but I just don't want to talk about it is one of the common symptoms of having a common enemy, because it is the common enemy. And the problem is then that what is now it that we just talked about uh, leaves the hero with the conclusion that it is a problem. When you've ever heard anybody say, I don't want to talk about it, when was it never a problem? So I've immediately told you without telling you there is a problem. So being human, what happens then is that it gets into here and into here and we start surmising what is the it. So the it becomes all manner of things when actually it was just it, okay? See, I've often said that I, I could get lots of people into trouble in lots of ways. For example, if I were to stand here and say, there are things about Chris Chapman that I could, I could tell you but I don't want to... How many of you would go away thinking, Anth wanted to tell us that she's the most wonderful giving person with a heart of gold who would give a last ounce of strength and money to help people in need. How many of you go away thinking about that if I made that statement? How many of you would go away thinking, there must not only be a problem, but it must be a huge problem because we're not being told what the problem is? And what happens then is that we become bound by a common enemy. That common enemy now becomes Chris because whatever it was must be really terrible and we need to be cautious and careful. And then, of course, the questions that we start asking, do you know what's gone on? Well, we don't, but then, you know, we say, well, I just don't want to talk about it. <laughs> See, it becomes a problem... And is a problem, maybe I share that problem, 
If our it is the same, then we must be friends. So if I say I don't want to talk about it, and it is a problem, and I think, well, I might have the same it, then suddenly that it has united us and we have a common enemy because we're going to be cautious. And we haven't actually said much. This is how this thing works. So on that one little thing of, of Pilate sending Jesus to Herod, there was a commonality of the enemy that actually bound them closely together and they became friends. But friends over what? Friends over the joy of leading Judea? Friends over the economic and, and social possibilities to change the region? No, they became friends over the fact that, that they had a common enemy. Okay. Now, now taking that thought... Um, the lack of what is psychologically a common enemy can leave a group without a deep connection and motivation. So here's the problem psychologically. If we don't have a common enemy, we become demotivated and we lose a sense of deep group connection. Because we don't know what we're against now. We don't know what we're fighting. Okay. Now, if I were to tell you that most of the deep connection and motivation in church life is developed by the production of a common enemy for the people, would you believe me? Now, in our case as a church, this is part of our problem. We have stopped making lots of things that used to be our enemy, our enemy. So now we don't have an enemy. We're like, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You know, I don't, who are we supposed to win? Who am I supposed to talk to? So, and also in our case, the removal of a reward, punishment, promotion culture can leave the group without a sense of motivation. Now, what I also want you to understand, because we're trying to come to maturity is that very often in group dynamics, what happens is you have a reward, punishment, promotion culture. Okay? So we're driven on by the fact of, if I do right, I'll be rewarded. If I do wrong, I'll be punished. So sometimes we do right not because of the reward for being right, but because we don't want to be punished for being wrong. Okay? But all those are driving factors. And then, of course, this other one that's in there, promotion, um, it, it, that really drives a lot because even in the subtle concept of what is spirituality and what defines spirituality, once you come outside the realms of all-embracing grace and no need for qualification, you actually have lost the very steps that most Christian churches thrive on in, in terms of promotion. I'm more spiritual than you. I should become, in different terminologies, wherever you come from, a deacon, an elder, a, um, you know, a trustee, a leader, um, you know, a team, whatever, becomes the, the prospect of promotion. But promotion comes because, because you have a holy life, and you're right before God and you pray. So there becomes a qualification process that's based on reward, punishment, and promotion. Now, here's the problem. Um, we have almost entirely removed that. Now, I thought it was a good idea at the time. I still think it's a good idea, but it sucks. It's one of those ideas that will always be a great idea, but actually... It creates a difficult 
environment much more difficult than the old one because in honesty, because of our humanity, we all understand reward, punishment, promotion. We all understand that. Um, Many of us were raised that way. Report, reward, punishment, promotion. Even as kids, that's how we were raised. It's akin to the law system, okay, and I'm not going to get into all that. It's akin to how the law works because that's how the law works. But if we are going to pursue the revelation that God has put in our hearts, we have to solve this dilemma. Um, Otherwise, you will not be motivated. But what I want you to understand is what was motivating you was not what should have been motivating you because that's not what's rooted in the heart of God or the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not blaming you for that because I also have had that driving mindset, what I'm saying to you is we sharing together, we have to solve this dilemma as an ice-breaking group to say, you can go away that is not based on reward, punishment, and promotion, and have a cohesive group, because that cohesive group is not bound together by what it was before. Now, sadly, one of the things that combine churches together is their disagreement with another church, Right? One of the things that binds evangelical fundamental churches in America, particularly in the South, is their hatred of everything Democrat. Now, of course, their Democrat party is is Barack Obama and Bill Clinton and those guys. Their assumption is that anything Democrat is liberal, anything liberal is godless, and anything godless they cannot back. That's by their assumption. So therefore, anything that is Republican must be what Christians should vote for. So one of the Republican candidates this, this next year is Donald Flipping Trump. I mean, misogynistic, hard-nosed, capitalist stand on your own mother to get an extra $5 person, but he's not a Democrat. So, so, yeah, so he must be all right. So what unites them is a common enemy. Now, that often happens, but of course the problem is then that beast will turn on itself when it finds another common enemy because it's not driven by the right culture. It's not driven... By the right heart, okay? And this is what we're trying to isolate and break. So, <coughs> excuse me. So, that, that's the problem that we now face that I want to resolve. You know, it manifests in very practical ways, which I won't deal with all of them. Well, should I still witness? Should I not witness? My question would be, what do you mean by witness? And what are you witnessing when you witness? Are we still trying to point people to Christ? Of course, dummy. Of course. That was never taken out of the equation. See, the problem is, when we only had Christ as a fire escape from hell, by default, we were still preaching Christ. But now we have a bigger, better, nicer, more wonderful, gentle, glorious Christ, and people say, well, should I still be preaching Christ? Yeah. He is the Word incarnate. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, we're not doing it in a, you better do this or you're going to be damned. We're doing it in, it would be great to do this because he is amazing. Which is why Jesus never said, follow me or you'll go to hell. He said, follow me and I'll make you, not follow me and I'll break you. Follow me and I'll make you. 
So I just throw that in to say that some of the confusion that says, well, if it's grace and if more people are in than we have a thought, and if, 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 should I still be sharing Jesus? Yes, yeah, share Jesus. Share him in more ways, though. You know, I'm learning to be more loving because my gospel was you knock on the door or you get into conversation, you're waiting for the opportunity to say, if you died tonight, where would you go? You know, that, that was the... Oh, and, and listen, I'm not criticizing that because we did that with the greatest integrity and um, I am not questioning our passion within that. But it's just now we have an, a different approach to the message. It's good news, right? It's not just here's how, here's how you get out of hell. It's good news. Here's how, here's how heaven comes to you, Okay. So, I wasn't meaning to say that, but maybe it was necessary anyway. So, so because we've removed reward, punishment, promotion, and, and maybe some, some way we need to reintroduce some thoughts on that, um, that I believe are ways that life functions, but are not this, okay? So, I, I'll take responsibility that, that maybe I've not done enough to fill that void, um, so if that's what it takes, right, a common enemy to culturally to unite a, you know, when was the greatest unity of this nation? Two world wars. When we fight. Why? Because we had a common enemy. So all of a sudden we've got, we've got bankers and coal miners standing together on a battlefield because we have a common enemy. Um, your problems usually start when there's no common enemy and until you find another common enemy. Um, so even politically, unity often comes because the commonality of the enemy. So, so do, you get, do you get the picture how this is a very, very powerful social um, psychological force that also sadly motivates a lot of church life? So the question is then, if that's what it takes to unite a culture, what is our common enemy? Do we have one? Should we have one? If so, what is it? Now, I want you to watch very carefully, listen very carefully now. Notice the use of the word what, not who. Let me repeat that. Notice the use of the word what, not who. I didn't say who is our common enemy, I said, what is our common enemy? Because the truth is, we don't have a who that we want to make our enemy. We have some what that we want to make our enemy. So, there can be a misunderstanding. And, and I know when we, we talked a little bit around the tables, um, uh, was it last week? I don't know. Some people seem to figure that when we were talking about what we were talking about, <coughs> that what we were doing was talking about other churches being, yeah, being the religious spirit. So, so other churches were the religious spirit, but, but not us. When, um, guys, please, it's, it's not a who, it's a what, okay? So, so there are no who's that we want to make our enemy, okay? But there are some what's that we need to define that, that, that are... Now, the reason I'm saying this, I wish we didn't need this, but I'm saying that human nature is such, and history has proved, that having a common enemy is the greatest binder of a community together in its cause. 
right? So how does the common enemy principle show up in the church's culture? You say, I don't get it. How, what do you mean? Okay, I've heard these terms that we are fighting, fight, we're always fighting, fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So core spirituality for many people is the fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So what is the motivating factor? The motivating factor is the common enemy. We were told the common enemy is the world culture, the flesh, you know, you wicked, wicked, wicked people, and the devil, this creature, person who's behind it all. Um, Yeah. Um, the devil's having a field day is a red herring. Okay, I just need to tell you that. Okay, I was I was always taught that. Oh, the devil's having a field day. Listen, the devil doesn't have to get out of bed in all honesty for us to make a mess of stuff, right? So, so we were taught these are our enemies. Let me give you a couple more. Okay, tearing down strongholds. These are all terminologies of a common enemy. Okay. I just think it's the wrong enemy, personally speaking. You know, we're told to guard sound doctrine. Why? Because we have a common enemy. What the enemy is trying to destroy doctrine. Incidentally, I have come to the conclusion, some, somebody tweeted about uh, we should have, um, what was the thing about, um, uh, not doctrine, it'll come. I'm trying. It'll come to me. That'll just pop in my head. I'll say that in a minute. Um, and things like contending for the faith. We are to contend for the faith. If you look through the Bible, you know, we've been talking about this on, on Saturday nights, um, and you're looking through a certain lens, there's a lot of focus on enemies and destroying enemies and fighting enemies. And much of that is because because humanity seems to need to have this com common enemy approach for motivation. Now, I'm going to explain two or three of those, but I'm not, I'm not going as deep as we, we, could, um, we could tonight. Oh, the only accurate theology is the one that accepts it may not be accurate. Because somebody had tweeted, we need to get back to ensure we have accurate theology. Well, the only accurate theology is the one that accepts it may not be accurate. Okay? That's good, that, isn't it? So, question, did Jesus have a common enemy? Where, Where did Jesus appear to show signs of aggression, resistance, and reaction? Because he did. The reason I'm asking this question is because if we've got to have a common enemy, we better make sure who that common em- what that common enemy is. And by saying what, I mean our common enemy is not the devil. The moment you say our common enemy is the devil, you just gave the devil more power than he has ever had. If there is a devil, he's never had that kind of power. See, we can't say on the one hand that he's our enemy, but then say, but Jesus on the cross spoiled principalities and powers, made an open show of them, and the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and that he conquered death and hell, and he led captivity captive in his train, and then say our fight is against the devil. Our fight's not against the devil. The devil, if there is a devil, and however you understand devil, and I say that simply because uh, it's a good debate, because 
Satan, while it's sometimes located in a person, actually simply means in, in Hebrew, adversary. So when Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, he wasn't meaning that Peter was actually Satan, the devil, horns, whatever, you know, that old serpent, was he? But he called him Satan. He was saying, you are being adversarial at this time. You, you are being opposite to the purposes of the kingdom at this time, Okay. So I'm saying this because I, I, do want to, I do want to disturb that idea that somehow... See, we, we, we are such a misfit in her. <laughs> Wonder, wonderful misfits because um, our, our formative experience of life was very, very different. And therefore our understanding of life is very different. And we're still now, you know, I, I will be 60 next year. I'm 59 and a half. Chris is 50 something as well. And uh, we've been married for 39 years. And we're still discovering things that when I say some things, what that says in her head is not what I think I said and vice versa. And uh, one of those things was, and then she says, well, why didn't you tell me that? Was that... Some of you still have in your head that the devil is the equal and opposite power to God. Right? Equal and opposite. Because that, that's how the intimation of what you were raised with said God and the devil. The, two, the devil is not equal and opposite to God. Right? If, if you begin to believe certain factors about the devil, you would have to ex, ex, accept that as, if he is a personal devil, that he was exiled from heaven. And when you exile somebody, they have no power. Every bit of power he ever had, he had to steal, which in my view is why the serpent had to get humanity to kneel to him, submit authority to him, because he had none. So we have elevated, sadly, um, this person being concept called the devil to be equal and opposite to God. He never was. He never will be and he still isn't. And Jesus made sure, or tried to make sure that we understand, look, that's actually not what you're fighting against. Right? He's not your problem. I actually believe we, we can do more damage to ourselves and the world than the devil could ever imagine in his wildest dreams. Right? We, we don't need the devil to help us be destructive and mean, and obstructive, and difficult, and unforgiving, and judgmental. We, we don't need a devil to help us do that. We, we're pretty good at that. We got that sucker down. So anyway, that's another story that I'm, I'm chasing a rabbit there. So I'm going to let that rabbit get away for, for tonight. Did Jesus have a common, common enemy? So... Aggression, resistance, reaction. Jesus definitely showed them. We can't, we can't doubt that. But where did Jesus appear to show those signs? Well, I'm going to give you four categories. Scribes. You keep reading in the Bible the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees. They were like bosom buddies, you know. The scribes were the guys who, put, putting it very simply, the scribe, because the scribe is somebody who scribes they write down scribes were people who were responsible for um, the flow of information um, into the public arena or in other words they were the the tabloids and broadsheet editors of of Judea in Jesus day okay they were the Maxwells of the time and 
you know, the news of the world and the sun and the telegraph and the mail and the express, the scribes, that's what they did. So uh, here's my view. Um, I don't trust the newspapers now. So why would you trust them then? And Jesus seemed to be of the same opinion. Now here's the problem. The scribes were reporting and reflecting on history, uh, culture, their religion, writing it down and passing it on, and that became a means by which it came. But you see, the problem is Jesus had a problem with the guys who were putting all that down. Okay? They were the Fleet Street editors who Jesus said, guys... So the scribes, the Pharisees, of course, were a religious sect of which the Apostle Paul, before he became Paul, was one of those. They were very keen on the letter of the law, memorizing scripture, prayer, tithing, all the things that we would, if we were in the promotion thing, say, you're very spiritual. And Paul, one of his letters, boasts and says, I was, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, I was a Pharisee, I was persecuting the church, I knew my scriptures like the back of my hand, blah, 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 blah. See, that promotion mentality, so, so we've got the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, we've got a group called the teachers of the law. These were kind of the people who conveyed the whole issue of the scribes and Pharisees into an applied rule for the people. And then there was one of the group, the chief priests. So when you read what we read before about Herod and Pilate, it says the chief priests and the Pharisees brought Jesus to Pilate. So the chief priests were as thick on this as anything else. Mostly the chief priests had come from the, the sect of the Pharisees. So the chief priests themselves. So we've got chief priests, teachers of the law, Pharisees, scribes, are all part of the religious establishment. Now, when I was growing up, the religious establishment was everything other than what I was. It was them Anglicans, them Catholics, you know, them Methodists going all liberal and them... Um, you know, and likewise, whichever group you happen to belong to, you know, if you were a Baptist, them Pentecostals are all just, you know... Waffle and shabba, shabba, shabba. So um, what, what you've got here is, is you've got definitely a picture of Jesus had a problem with, with organized religion, even though that organized religion had rooted out of something that he himself started as God incarnate in heaven when he was the word. He started the jolly thing, but now he's saying what these boys have done with it, I don't recognize the thing that I wanted to start. Okay. Now, of course, you can add in that as well. There were times when Joe Ordinary, like Peter, came foul of that because Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, you know, get behind me, Satan. Same thing. So, what I'm trying to show you here is that Jesus' aggression, resistance, reaction was not against people, but it was against what they introduced that Jesus found to be contrary to what the kingdom of God was trying to establish. Now, my view would be this. Are we then saying that, you know, those suckers back then slipped into that? 
But thank God ever since that day, the religious establishment never has. I would propose to you that religious establishment never changes like a leopard that never changes its spots. Now, lots of things I could say about that, but time forbids, and, and I'm not going to. Um, so, so it seems that Jesus, the scribes weren't his enemy, the Pharisees weren't his enemy, the chief priests weren't his enemy, the teachers of the law weren't his enemy, but what was coming out of them was, so listen to this, Luke 11 and verse 37. Luke 11 verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. (laughs) Do you know what, all this, this and I, I was into it for so long, you know, what, what I ought to wear, what I didn't feel I could wear, you know, all under different guises like respecting God, respecting the word, being respectful in church, you know, I went through the period, the particular um, group that I was with for a long period, we believed a woman had to wear a hat in church, um, you know, and that a woman could not pray or prophesy unless she had her head covered and you know, the days as well where a woman could not hold office. Now, that always shocked me as, as an Assemblies of God pastor because most of, our, most of the dangerous places in the world to which we sent missionaries, it was all women. So we couldn't have a woman pastor, a woman couldn't pray or prophesy without her head covered, but she could go to somewhere where she could lose her head and look after those dangerous people out there while all we brave men stayed here and prayed for them. Thank God for prayer. I pray for you. Pray a hedge of protection around you. It's like, great, you know, can't you do something better than a hedge? I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, somebody with intents uh, can come through that hedge like, you know, pray a hedge of protection in Jesus' name. What's all that about? You know, I want a steel wall with a brick outside and... And tacted, Jesus put a steel wall and bricks and a, a moat full of crocodiles and tanks on the outside. So, you know, just, it didn't first wash. Tradition, culture, whatever. Um, you ever figured that some of this stuff that they made important, Jesus was like, See, so, so some of the things we've done is because I think Jesus is still like that with a lot of the stuff we have. Take it or leave it. Well, you know. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also, but give what is inside to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you like unmarked graves which men walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, now you've mentioned it, and you teachers of the law, 
Woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves would not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I'll send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they'll kill and others they'll persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. (laughs) And then you get worried about what I might say. Woe to you experts in the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered in, and you've hindered those who were entering. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something that he might say. Pretty aggressive, resistant, reactive. And then, of course, I mentioned Peter as well in Matthew 16, 23. When Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So, I just showed you those uh, things from Scripture simply to ask the question, was the common enemy a person or people or was it a spirit? Did Jesus dislike an individual Pharisee or did he just dislike the spirit that was actually showing up through that Pharisee. Would Jesus love that Pharisee, that teacher of the law, that scribe? Yes, he would. But would he love what it was that was coming out of them? The answer is no. So it's very evident that Jesus had a common enemy. That enemy was the religious spirit. Now that's why I want to emphasize that when we say religious spirit, we're not talking about other churches or other leaders. We are talking about anybody who carries the kind of spirit that Jesus had to say this strongly to Pharisees and teachers of the law. This is what you're like, and it's not the kingdom, okay? So, do you understand then, um, well, can we call it a religious spirit? Is that okay? Let's call it that and try, and, and do you understand what we mean by religious spirit? Religious spirit is systems of belief that are contrary to what God intended in Jesus, Okay? You say, well, how do you explain that? Well, if he says that we are to forgive our enemies, and for example, let's take us, somebody's not forgiving us, something ain't working there. If he says whether a person repents or doesn't repent, 70 times 7 forgive them, and there is no forgiveness, something ain't working there. If there has to be groveling apologies and repentance before forgiveness is given, then the truth is that's not forgiveness that you're being given. Whatever it is, it's not forgiveness. Just look at the word forgive, forgive, F-O-R, forgive. If you're going to put the Old English F-O-R-E in front of, give in front of, right? So when I forgive you, I give in front of. I give in front of an apology. I give in front of a repentance, I give in front of you, resenting what you have done. I forgive you before. And in spite of that there may never be a repentance, you are forgiven. So our relationship is undeterred 
by the fact that forgiveness allows us to carry on as if nothing had happened. Um, pride ourselves is probably the wrong word because, you know, pride's one of those words. But what I can tell you is that wherever there has been an issue in this house and someone has come back, we have welcomed them as if they never left. And we have started the relationship as if the intervening period never existed. Now, sadly, what I've found is that's been less of a problem to us, but more of a problem to the people to that come. Because for all of us, and this is to help all of us, if we are going to maintain good relationship, you cannot maintain it unless you deal with the issue that originally caused the disruption in the relationship. So just going doesn't solve it. Just coming back to a place doesn't solve it. You have to resolve what caused the problem. So... So it's systems of belief that are not conducive with the ongoing development of the kingdom. See, see, the kingdom of God should be amazing because here's what it says about God. It says that he has forgotten all my sins and put them behind his back never to be remembered. That means if you go to, to God, technically if you go to God and say, God, I'm sorry for what I did today, he'd say, I take you sorry, but I don't know what it is you're talking about. See, if he forgets, if he puts them behind his back never to be remembered, we've got to not remind God of things he's already forgotten. But that old culture, you see, the old way of doing things of reward and punishment and promotion means that you can't live that way, okay? Because everything has to be stored. If I'm going to reward you, I have to store up what it is I'm going to reward you for. But if also, if I'm going to punish you, I have to store up all the things I'm going to punish you for. And if I'm going to promote you, I have to store up all the brownie points that promote you. But when I look at the heart of God, God's not like that. So we can't have a God who forgets and then say, yes, but when I remind him, he'll remember. So this is a completely different culture. Even in the blending of church communities and denominations and people, this is the spirit that will bind together. Okay, so let me, let me hurry up and finish what I'm saying. So let me read you one of the scripture. Mark 11, verse 15. Mark 11, verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Here's here's the response to that. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now, so he comes and turns over the tables. Most of you are familiar with the story because the culture was people were not prepared for the offering they were to bring and how they were to present themselves so we had a short circuit thing the the equivalent today and this this is going to make some of you mad the equivalent today is like is like having supplying praise and worship before the real deal okay and get you get you ready get you prepared get your our hearts should be ready before that 
and without that. So that if we have it, it's simply, it's simply contributing to a state of heart that we already came in. Okay? So anyway, having said that controversial thing, um, uh, he, when he talks about a den of robbers, the robbers and thieves were not the outside people coming in. Okay, that's not who he was saying with the robbers and thieves. The robbers and thieves were those who were running the show. He says, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. You have done it. So it's the same thing going on that he did with scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the law, high priests. It's the same thing. His, his anger is vented at one common enemy, which is this religious spirit that doesn't allow the kingdom to fully come through. So let me bring this to a close and then Chris might have a, a, a few thoughts to, to add. So who or what exactly then are the enemies that we are told, because I need to deal with this, in, for example, Hebrews 1.13, it says, and his enemies will, made his, will be made his footstool. Because very quickly, I can't deny that as you read through the Bible, there are statements about enemies. You know, his enemies will be subjected, put his enemies under his feet, his enemies will be made his footstool. Here's the problem, because we've seen it through a Jewish nationalistic lens, and assume therefore that his enemies must be people. When actually, if God's enemies are people, then Jesus is a joke. Because he can't say God so loved the world. He can God say God so loved some of the world. God loved the parts of the world that weren't his enemies. Uh, now, of course, if you're a Calvinist, you, to some degree you believe that, but I'm not. So, so we've got the issue here that, that what does it mean when it says that his enemies will be made his footstool? Just as we've already shown that it was not people, it was actually a spirit. I believe the enemies that have made his footstool are not like, you know, Arabs and Muslims and Hindus. And the enemies that have made his footstool are things like unbelief and sickness and poverty and self-righteousness and pride. Those are the enemies that God is after. Not Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and transcendentalists and Baha'is and... That's not his enemies. His enemies are unbelief and sickness and poverty and self-righteousness and wrong government and pride and all these kind of things and judgments and offences. They're the enemies of God that he said in Jesus they'll be put under his feet. I, I want to be with Jesus on that one. So let, let me finish because I want Chris to have, have some, a little time just to share some things. A great definition, I think, for our common enemy would be anything and everything which stands in the way of inclusion. Um, which is not necessarily the heart of the church. That's shocking, but it just isn't. Um, and one of the reasons I know that is because in many quarters I'm not included. Because the sin is too big, or the whatever it is is too big. So, so let me just say this in closing. Isaiah 56, which is Isaiah 56 verse 7 is, is where this verse comes from when Jesus says, my, father, my father's house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. It comes from Isaiah 56 and verse 7. The context of my father's house will be a house of prayer is the one where it says that 
eunuchs who should have been excluded can be included. If you will honour the Sabbath, which is not a day, but the finished work that God has done to finish everything, if you'll respect that, and if you'll accept the eunuch and the foreigner, he said, then my father's house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So when the house is inclusive, the house is praying to God as a house of prayer for the nations because we included the nations. Of course, that, that gets, you get the sharp end of the stick then because, you know, we included all kinds of people, including gays and whoever, people that society says, no, that can't be happening here. That's the house of prayer for all nations. So I believe one of our common enemies should be anything and everything which stands in the way of inclusion. That's our enemy. But one other thing, I believe also every system of belief which contradicts, minimizes and refuses to accept or stands in the way of the full truth of the gospel of grace, that's our enemy. Not people, but that. And I will contend with that, I will challenge that, I will fight that on every front because that is my enemy, not people. And in doing that, I hope we can find grace to actually make that the common enemy of all the people of God. Uh, so anyway, I, I'm going to shut up there and just see what Chris wants to add to that. And I'll finish by saying this, that however we choose to define it, because again, I'm not saying I've got exactly the right words there of how, however we choose to define it, it must reflect Jesus' model. And his model was, guys, scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the law, high priests, I do not like what you represent here. You think it's saying something good. I'm telling you what it's saying is not good. And I want you to have the humility to accept that so that together we can walk a journey and put this thing right. So there you go. If you've got something you'd like to... Trying to add some stuff. Oh, that was great. Do you enjoy it? Has it made sense to you? Um, we, we're bringing what we're bringing tonight because we, we are, as, as a leadership, trying to scratch where it itches. And if people bring things up on a Wednesday night, um, you know, a question that they have because of how we have changed over the last however many years, we are trying to address that. We, we really do want you to be given an understanding so that you can can move on and um like Hans brought up this business about you know having a uh a, a, a common enemy and how that is often um the glue that binds people together to make them a co- cohesive group um I wanted to just bring you um a very negative thing actually it's going to sound very negative but I'm going to do it anyway if anything as a church as a community we don't have anything that we should have to make us a very uh, cohesive group. We just don't. And I'm going to tell you what those things are. First of all, if you're in an army, you know, like the, 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 the armed forces, the, one of the major things is, a, is obedience to, to leadership. Right. Do we have that here? <laughs> Come on, let's be honest. Now, why is that? We, th- we, we got rid of that a long time ago because it, it came through the, you know, I often point at that running the race marked out for us. 
because we were on a particular journey and God was revealing a very new understanding about being uh, in the new covenant and about how we were brought out of the, the, the law and about control and about fear into something that was very different and it was about the law of love. So we, as a couple, had to recognize that a lot of our upbringing and even in the church was very much all covenant based on uh, the law, obedience, uh, doing as you're told, jumping to numbers. And we had to say, do you know what? That's got to go because the new covenant says, I'm going to put my law in your heart and we're going to not treat people like parents to children, but encouraging everybody to grow up and become mature. So obedience got dumped, right? Another one, dependency got thrown out. We're not going to have you dependent on us anymore. We said, no, 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 that's not what we're going to do. It's not Chris and Anthony who know everything and blah, blah, blah. And we'll ask them everything and this, that and the other. No, getting rid of that. See, because we want you to mature and to realize that you can be, uh, you know, fully equipped in your own relationship with God and go your own journey. Another one, group pride. (laughs) I love the rock and I love everything about what we are. But what we don't foster is for you guys to go around very arrogantly saying we had the best thing since sliced bread and we get everything right. And oh, you must come to our church because it's the best. No, we don't. We are proud of what we believe God has shown us in the journey that we have gone. But we certainly, and, and this is part of our problem, we're very insecure now because we're learning something new every day. And we can't stand up on that stage from one week to the next and say, do you know what? I still believe today what I believed last week because I'd have to say it's already developed. It's already evolved. So we haven't got a group pride that's got this arrogance that says we've got it right. And Because in fact, the stuff that now we've thrown out and we've had to repent and said, you know what? Even in our understanding of, 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 of the love of God, I loved it when Martin said on Sunday night, over uh, Saturday night, he says over the years, the best thing that's happened to him is learn who God really is. And I think we've all done a bit of that over these last years, haven't we? So we've got rid of obedience as being the number one discipline because it's what keeps people in line. Tell you what, we don't keep people in line here. Sometimes I wish we could, but we don't, right? Um, Dependency. We want interdependency. See, isn't it funny you go from one extreme to the other? We either have everybody dependent on us or nobody's dependent at all and they become totally independent you know it goes from extremes what we really need is an interdependency that actually says I want to work in partnership with this house with this team with the understanding that we've given to build what God has called us to build and and that really is at the core of it but as for as a mature adult not as a parent to a child. Is, is this making sense? Then, of course, Anne's talked talk about the common enemy. Now, I do believe that all of those things, which is what is the glue that keeps things together, I would have to say we don't have any of them. So that's either going to depress you 
or it's going to make you smile. Because, see, for me, um, hang on, I've, I've forgotten what I was about to say and I've just got to find it. Right, that's it. We equate structure to those things that I've just said. Right, so if we have obedience to authority, dependency on leaders, a group pride and a con- common enemy, we associate that with structure. And we all say, oh, this is wonderful. I feel so safe. But the problem is you babies, if that's what you have to have. I hope I'm making sense because I'm just trying to just bring all that's being said tonight together. So what we decide is let's get rid of all of that. Yes, we're your leaders, but we don't really hold much whack anymore, do we? I remember what it used to be like. You know, I was terrified of leaders. Nobody's terrified of me anymore. Yeah, and I, can, I can say, well, I'd, I'd really prefer you did this. Oh, well, it doesn't matter what you prefer, does it? Because I'm going to do my own thing anyway. That's what goes on here, right? I'm, I'm not trying to be awful. I'm just trying to say that's how free you are. Because really, when we get down to it, when people are struggling in our place to understand where they fit, wanting structure, really, do you know what's to blame? Let's tell you what's to blame, and it's right good fun. It's a little thing called freedom. Give freedom, you can't really then have as much structure as people want. People want structure because they feel safe, but with freedom, you are told to make your own structure. Isn't that true? Now, we can either say, I am going to create a structure that is going to be interdependent and in service and X, Y, and Z to support things. Or we can say, I'm going to be independent and just do my own thing. Isn't that the truth of what freedom is? I hope this is making sense. So, we want you not to be controlled. We want you to be free. But then when we make you free you feel that there is no structure. So we cannot win. (laughs) And that's the end. (laughs) Literally, I'm done. I'm done. I, I can't put it any better than that. So if you want structure, I can give you structure. I don't think you're going to like it. Because when I start giving you some structure, treating you like a, a child, as a parent to a tri- child, rather than allowing you to be an adult, you'll then say, you're treating me like a child. And then I'll say, yes, but you wanted structure. See what I mean? Can't win. So here's the thing. We've got rid of all of those and it creates a problem because in the heart of people, they desperately want leadership and yet the Bible talks so clearly about the fact that, that God is going to, in the new covenant, was going to put certain things in our hearts in order that we might be able to function as mature people without having to be told what to do every minute of the day and this, that and the other. He says, I'm going to put it in your heart. Most of the time, though, do we really listen to our hearts? We torn, we get pulled, there's this going on, there's that going on. We torn. 
But at the end of the day, if we just surrender and say, do you know what? It was for freedom that Christ set me free and actually just do our best within it all to, to, to give ourselves, to, to do whatever we can to build the kingdom. Now, just I should have just ended when you said, and that's it. But common enemy, I actually don't think I have one anymore. And I think that, that is one of the problems that you were talking about tonight. I love what you said at the end about uh, standing against. And you see, I don't like any againstness anymore. When you've been an object of, a, of people being against you, the last thing you want to do is be against anybody. I promise. I, I, I don't do it. I'm very, very liberal even with our Riley, mainly because I was brought up very strictly and I hated what it did to me. So I don't want to do it to somebody else. I hope we all think that way in our lives when, we, when we're analysing stuff that we're going through and think, I didn't like that to happen to me. So I'm not going to do that to somebody else. It's the scripture, isn't it? Doing to others as you would do uh, have done un- unto yourself. So I agree with this idea of uh, the common enemy being anything that stands in the way of the kingdom of God. However, and I tweeted this just the other day, that somebody said, you know, hateful Christians uh, have got to really be stood against because basically it's just not right. And I tweeted, but we have got to love, quote, hateful Christians for being what they are as much as anybody else, you know, terrorists or what have you. We have to say, okay, these are the people who my heart needs to go out to, to say, you, you need to be loved. It's, it's a love deficiency that's going on in you. So even though we've talked about this, I would like to say that whether a common enemy is cohesive or not to a group, I'm still determined not to have any. How's that? Sounds as though I'm going against Anthony. He, he knows I would rather not have any, and I'm going to just decide that in every situation, I'm going to say, Do you know what? I'm willing to walk a journey with you, whoever it is, whatever it is, say, My heart towards you is for. And on that basis, I, I, I believe we're going we're, we're gonna to go far. I like to analyze my life rather than analyzing others. I often think to myself, okay, what's going on in me? What's happening? Figure that out, fix that, and then you can move on, can't you? Most of the time, if you do that, you don't then start thinking about the other situation. What's going on in me? So anyway, like I said, this house has none of the things that most people want for structure. And I'm not so sure we're ever going to be able to give you it because I think that where we are going and the, the road that God has marked out for us is actually one where, where a lot of the, the, the boundaries that other people set up for people are being said, no, you're not going to do that for people anymore. We're actually expecting them to do it for themselves. See? But then, of course, that's not always good for us as leaders. Sometimes it don't feel so good for you. I'm sorry, that's the way it is. So, I rest my case. And I'll give it back to him now. All right, so... um, One thing I think we do need to redevelop again, of course, as Chris has said, it's, it's difficult in... 
where there is an environment sometimes of insecurity and the lack of surety for the reasons we've said. Sometimes it's difficult to have a sense of group pride. Um, because we are then inviting people to a journey more than we're inviting them to a destination. Um, and that's not everybody's cup of tea, it's not everybody's thing, but, but in essence that is where we have to change in our mindset of people, we're inviting them onto a journey. So, so it would be nice if we could develop a greater sense of, of, um, of group pride. Be, be, be proud in the nicest sense of where you have come and where God is leading us. Now, now here becomes the other problem. Uh, who are we trying to impress and who are we trying to please? Because we, just like the scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the law, high priests, we can fall into the trap that we're trying to, as, as people would once say, you know, preach to the gallery or sing to the choir or, you know, we're actually trying to impress the wrong people. So we become more interested in what the religious community think about us than actually what impact we might be having on the world itself. Now, um, of course, the problem is you're not going to grow very much from, from transfer growth with, with that mentality. Now, you know, <coughs> I have an ego. <laughs> uh, I'll be honest, I have an ego. So my ego... Um, all the time wants to see every seat full here and in the balcony. But I have to appreciate that um, I don't know whether that's the cry of the kingdom or whether that's my ego screaming, screaming, and I'm just being honest with you because I would feel to a degree that I had succeeded. Um, whether I had or not, that becomes a figment of the imagination then of... Uh, and then, of course, the problem becomes I'm then worried about how you're going to keep all these people now that you've got them and uh, what if they start to lead. And, and so, so all these things can play havoc with our focus. Um, and so, so our major focus is, not, is just not going to come by transfer because we are not just singing the same song a little better or dancing the same dance a little neater. Um, we are different. Um, but rejoice in the different. Embrace different. Be thankful that God chose you different. Let that be the heart cry. Let that be the heart song. Don't try and mellow different to be what God never called you to be. Be confident that God called you to be this. God called you here. God says, I need some people to make this sound. And he called you and he brought you. But you see, if, if we are sort of unsure and embarrassed by that, then we're not very attractive to people who are just longing for, just to hear a sound. There's so many people longing to hear a sound. Even the sound of, here's a group of Christians who are not sure what this is all about. There are people longing to hear that sound. Because for too long they've heard the, we're going to tell you how it is. And th th there's so many longing to hear a sound. So I'm trying to encourage you that, that to be who God called you to be, where God called you to be. Let's keep moving, moving forward together.
Um, also, as Chris said, just one other little point on this, and I'm going to read a verse from the Bible. Um, freedom, which we've tried to bring, one of the problems freedom brings is the tendency to independence, right? So we've encouraged you, we want you to be mature and make decisions and move on. The problem is sometimes when I look at those decisions, I think, I wish I'd never done that. My concern is not with our freedom to make decisions. My concern is with the spirit of independence. So we're no longer cohesive with the group because now in freedom we have become independent rather than interdependent. So free people, mixing with free people to enjoy that freedom and propagate that freedom rather than free people becoming independent. So, so things like our, our compulsion to attend, our compulsion to meet together, our compulsion to gather, our compulsion to be excited can wane because we now are not being driven by those principles Chris said, but now we can become independent. Well, you know, I just thought I'd rather fancy. Now, my point on that would be this, and of course I have a vested interest in this, okay? If you asked your kids, do you want to go to school today? What are they going to say? I mean, there's one or two I can think of who would say, absolutely, let me stay But, you know, if we're honest, not many kids are going to say, I want to go. Why do we make them go? Why do we have to have a law that says your kids have to go to school from four and a half or five until they're 18 years of age and you must send them? Because we've understood the importance of education in social dynamic. But people don't choose education unless education is seen to be beneficial. Kids can't even do that. So I'm not doing this for the good of my health, okay? Because sometimes it's done more harm to my health than it's done good to my health. I'm doing this because some things really are important. Sometimes when you think, I don't want to go, you're no different to the kid who doesn't want to go to school, but why do we send them to school? Because we want them to learn what they need to learn, whether they think they want to learn it or not. I think there's lots of things that we need to learn, whether we want to learn them or not. And I'm also aware, being what you might call the teacher at the front of the class, Jenny will have seen this, um, the kids who are paying little or no attention to what you appear to be saying. That's normal in any teaching environment. Um, but actually, I know that more goes in than we realize. That there's more life. I, I knew stuff when I was a kid, but I couldn't tell you when it was that I learned what it was that I knew. But because I sat in a place like this from being a baby, stuff was going into me. I had no clue what was going into me until the time when it needed to come out and it was there. Okay. So is church attendance necessary for spirituality? No. Is church attendance good if I want to be spiritual? Yes. Okay. So I'm calling you to little things like that that say our freedoms can actually make us independent. Independence is when I am more concerned about my time, me, what I think, what I like, than I am about the group dynamic that says, you know what, I'm an independent interdependent. 
I have freedom to think. I have freedom to question. I have freedom to make my own journey. But I have chosen for that freedom not to be separate to everybody else who's making that journey and doing that journey and asking those questions. So the dynamic of that is that we build a unique sense of independence into dependence. Okay? Do you understand what I'm saying? So I think, you know, I'm, I'm asking you to have a little think about that because independence is actually anti-God. Okay? Independence is anti-God because God is not independent. Right? So we've got to be interdependent in our process. So I just wanted to say that as a practical, let's pull together, let's be excited, let's move forward, let's accept our unique calling. And then I want to read you this. So... Um, why don't we stand while I just while I just read this to you? Here's what it says in Ephesians four, verse thirty-one: Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamour, and evil speaking be put away from you. With all malice, and and this is a key verse, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Forgiving one another, even as in God, Christ forgave you. So in terms of common enemy, whatever that may mean or not mean, I want this to be the case. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And where you recognize that that is not the root, or at the core of what is being done, said, or enacted, then you have found an enemy that in Jesus' name you can rise against. Because how do you rise against it? By being kind, by being tender-hearted, by being forgiving, even as God in Christ forgave you, and by insisting that if we are going to continue on this path, I require that you be kind to your others, that you be tender-hearted, that you be forgiving, even as God in Christ forgave you. When this spirit is active, there is no, nothing that is insurmountable in the context of social interaction, human relationship, and uh, our cohesiveness. Okay, so let's just pray. Father, Peter wrote that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of you when we realize you called us out of darkness into light. So we know that in our religious stuff, there is not this knowledge. Just like, just like you rebuked the Pharisees and the teachers of the law saying that you think you have knowledge, but actually what you think is your knowledge is not helping. And so, you know, we, we just submit ourselves to you, Lord, that we, we do believe we have everything that we need for life and for godliness in our knowledge of you. So, so I'm just calling that forth, Father, as we, um, as we just seek to be this people who you've called us to be and, and accept the call and move ahead and move forward and um, to be forgiving and tender-hearted and kind to one another. And so you've heard all we've said tonight, Lord, we just submit it to you for... Trust that it has some value before your eyes and that um, however this interprets in us, help us not to distort it through lenses of, of, of experiences and incidences and sometimes information that 
that takes this stuff and misrepresents it. But I pray somehow in every one of us, a pure heart will will receive this word and you'll help us to move forward together because we are grateful, Father, for where you've brought us from and we're grateful to where you've brought us to and we have great expectation and hope for where you are leading us on this journey. But we're not demanding that you show us what the destination is, just that we know that you are with us on the journey because Jesus, you said, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. So that's good enough for me, Lord. If you'll just be with us to the end of this thing, um, then I'll be happy. So these precious people, bless them, Lord. Bless every one of them. Let, let them be conscious of and, and aware of the incredible blessing of God that knows no boundaries and, and no measures, that comes by grace through faith. And that's not of ourselves, even that is the gift of God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you for being here and for listening and keep thinking and talking. And other than that, we'll see you on Saturday.